Hi, I'm Tammy Potter, and welcome to the Pregnancy Process Podcast, a show designed to help you navigate the hugely transformative journey to motherhood, where you'll hear the unique experience of experts in this area and the incredible stories of women sharing their conception, pregnancy, and postnatal journeys so that you can have a healthier, more informed pregnancy. In today's episode, I talk to Elizabeth Mucci from Life on the Inside. With over 20 years experience working in the fertility space, Elizabeth's unique background combines science, nutrition, herbal medicine, and reproductive medicine. Holding a Bachelor of Science, Masters in Reproductive Medicine, and Advanced Diploma in Herbal Medicine and Nutritional Science, Elizabeth works with women who face challenging fertility issues resulting in repeat IVF failures or multiple miscarriages. In this episode, we're going to be exploring the myths and misconceptions surrounding women's fertility. Why women's supposed ticking biological clocks may have more time on it than we're led to believe. We'll talk about the things you can do to improve your overall health, which helps increase your fertility, creating a flow on effect to your pregnancy and postnatal journey, as well as your children's health. Elizabeth, thank you so much for your time today. It's fantastic to have you here with us. It's great to be here, Tammy. Thank you for inviting me. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. And you do have quite an interesting story surrounding how you actually came to work in the fertility space or do the work that you actually do. And if it's okay with you, I think the best place to start is your inspiration to work in this space. Okay. When I was about 15, I began working with handicapped children, kids with special needs, and it was a real, it was heartbreaking. And I was really interested in knowing what what had happened to some of these children. And so I was hearing some of the stories And so I remember thinking, if there's anything I can do, if there's anything I can do to avoid this for people in the future, that's what I want to do. I want to figure out, is there any way we could reduce this outcome? And so I had uh, a real affinity for science. I was always very mathematical and science minded. And it was a real passion of mine. So everywhere I went, I did biology. I basically became a biologist. And through that, I then branched off to do biochemistry and physiology as my majors. But I worked under a fantastic endocrinologist who had specialized in defects and pregnancies and reproduction outcomes. And so we had lots and lots of discussions over a two-year period. And she's written a couple of books talking about caffeine and alcohol and certain drugs that were stripping nutrients from our system. And I was so puzzled by why her information had not got out there. Uh, She said she had had a real really, really hard time. She had gone to meetings and meetings and begged um, some industries to just at least let people know that this was going to affect their embryos. And she said she had closed doors everywhere. So that was frustrating for her, but also for me, I just thought, I suppose what I need to do is keep learning, keep studying and see if I can do a one-to-one education thing. And so I did, I kept going. So then I thought, well, I really became a scientist. The, The degree I did was very much to go into a laboratory 
and become your typical scientist that you would see in a laboratory. And so I branched off and thought, no, I want to do nutritional science as well as herbal medicine, and then use those things to manipulate the body and encourage certain things. I knew through my biochemistry that our body is an incredible pharmacy, basically a pharmacy, that if we encourage certain things, it will correct itself. It wants to do that. And through epigenetics and things like that, we know that you can switch genes on and off. And so these were the areas that I was passionate about. And so after doing that, I started working with patients and I was getting um, some really, really good results just with my science background with fertility. A lot of people were gravitating that way. I was doing general medicine, but my passion was fertility. And then I went on to do a master's in reproductive medicine, just so that I could really fine tune and understand what are the areas that if I could just correct, and I've got some great tools here, we'll just get even higher results, even though I was already getting really, really high results. And so that was great. And also it allowed me to have a certain level of respect in the medical world because now I was very integrative. They would listen because I actually have both sides. So I wasn't seen as someone that was maybe just throwing some general ideas and some general science. It became very fine-tuned. So that was exciting because I work really closely with doctors and specialists. And they've seen over the 23 years that I've been working in this area, how I've had extraordinary outcomes. They have told patients that certain things aren't possible. And then the patients go back and through blood tests, sperm analysis and results, they're scratching their heads and wondering how I did that. So that was exciting. And it's exciting for them too, because they obviously want to help their patients as well. So we've become really good teams for in that sort of scenario. And in the end, I suppose I'm a bit like a dog at a bone. I just saw everybody as if, if they were my sister, how far would I go for them? What would I do? And I, I just became someone who would turn every stone and study and investigate and keep looking for results and outcomes. And that's, I suppose my character's a bit like that. Curiosity, huh? You've got a curious mind. Yeah. Problem solving curious mind. I love that so much. So A lot of the work that you do is with women who are suffering from unresolved or undiagnosed fertility issues. They might have undergone numerous rounds of IVF without success or suffered from multiple miscarriages or a combination of both. Many of these people would have been told things like their fertility is unexplained, they're too old, your egg quality is not going to get any better, and there's nothing that they can do to improve their fertility. I'd really like to hear your perspective on this. Yeah, most of my patients come to me, they're probably classically between the ages of 34 and 44. Many, I would say, probably more than half will be at least 40. 40 to 44. I tend to be their last resort. So that's a very classic story. They've done a lot of IVF before they've come to see me, or they've got some multiple miscarriages over and over again. And they've been told there's nothing else that they could do other than donor eggs, donor um, surrogacy, or they just have to learn to accept the fact that they just have to accept that they're just not going to have children. That's very common for me to see that. How would you go about, this is a very big question, but and I'm sure the answer to this would be 
so dependent on the individual, but how would you go about working with someone like that? So normally what I do, I do a fertility program. So what I, mm-hmm. I do is I work, if if we're wanting um, the best result that we can get, I need to see them three months before they're even trying. And I, I will work with someone who might be 44 and I'll say, look, you can try while I'm trying to correct things, but I don't tend to see the results until four to six months after we've started. And that's because it takes three months to make an egg. So in three months, you will then see that egg begins its journey of growth. So that's three and a half months before they actually ovulate that out. So I tend to lay everything out on the table. A lot of the time they're coming to me with a lot of results, a lot of investigation. However, most of the time, I'm going to say at least 85% of the time, there's things missing. Things haven't been done because a lot of the stuff is in in grey areas. When you are making hard and fast rules in science, you have to do random controlled trials. That's very difficult to do with women that are trying to fall pregnant. You don't play around with babies and deaths and miscarriages. So therefore, it's very hard for them to prove 100% that a particular infection might be causing an issue or whatever that could be causing issues. And so what I do is I go, let's lay everything. Obviously, I've got 23 years up my sleeve and I've got very high success rates. So I know through patients, years and years of, of that sort of stuff, of what has worked. And so I'll explain that to a patient. I normally love to teach patients I want them I'm very much a science teacher so I want them to understand how their body works so I'm explaining to them look there's gaps here we will go and investigate and they will see those changes happening before their very eyes they will hear those responses from doctors and and sonographers or whatever going oh my goodness you look amazing like you're really fertile and they might have already been there before there are sonographers that are saying, look, if you really want to fall pregnant, you probably need to go and do some work with Elizabeth because we see women come in here all the time that we thought weren't going to be able to fall pregnant. So they know themselves, they've seen it. But what I would do is lay everything out on the table. I will figure out how deep an investigation has gone. We will go in further. And then basically I work with the macro systems and the micro systems. So the macro will be ovarian function, testicular function, uterine function, liver function, brain function, you know, what's happening. I will teach patients about how their particular environment, their specific individual issues are affecting them and we will alter and correct them, their lifestyle, whatever that may be, their diet, exercise regimes, that sort of thing, and how they can have such an impact on their fertility instead of just laying back and just accepting the fact that there's nothing that they can do. There's really, it's just their lot in life. So we get very active. Once I fix the systems and get them much better, we retest. They see that it's much better. We're getting hard evidence for that. And then I fine tune. So the fine tuning will be for that individual, what did they need for their ovulation? Did they need to ovulate 
further along? Did they need to ovulate quicker? What was happening to their lining, their ovarian function? What was happening to their brain function? We know everything. So then there's no guesswork. They know exactly when to try, how to try. It may mean they have to go back to IVF if they've got no tubes or maybe their husband doesn't ejaculate sperm, but we needed to get the quality better. And then we see the results start changing. They get much higher quality embryos and we get to freeze them and you know all of that sort of stuff so there's a lot of areas I think whenever somebody really simplifies fertility straight away you know that they are really not able to go into all the biochemistry they don't have tools so they tend to simplify it all because what what else can they do they've got no other tools to help them with so therefore it is what it is and that's what tends to happen with a lot of my patients Mm. well I mean the body is really not a simple being there's so many systems in play in all areas so that all sounds so interesting you know I didn't actually I can't believe I didn't know this as a female like you would think that you'd know this things but you I didn't know that it takes three months to make an egg yeah I really I honestly really didn't know that and I've got a question that was uh, is kind of related to that let's say let's just take me for example if I was experiencing a very, very stressful period three months ago of my life, or like I was really unhealthy, or I was like drinking quite a lot, not that I, not that yeah, I, yeah, not yeah, that this yeah. is, this is just an example, but would that then affect my egg quality then three months later, or even potentially my cycle three months later? Absolutely. So that's so interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what often happens, right, people will go out and party and they think, oh, yeah, like we're going to go and try in, say, a couple of months' time. Mm. But we're doing this last hurrah. We're going to go and party and they go and do whatever it is that they want to do, whatever that means. And often what happens too, even that would be maybe somebody who's thinking, and now we're going to try this month and we're going to clean up everything this month. That's somebody who might be thinking that's what they need to do to give that that baby the best chance. Other people will find out that they're pregnant and then they're going, right, now we stop drinking, we stop. What ends up happening is you actually dump all these toxins on that embryo. And so now you've actually caused more issues or higher chance of defects because you've gone and detoxed right at that period of time when you're trying Wow, that is so interesting. Mm. Well, like that's amazing. I I totally didn't know that. That's unbelievable. Mm. Oh yeah. The other thing too are things like certain medications we know strip the body of folate, especially painkillers. So mm. a lot of people are told that you just can keep taking the painkillers and then when you want to fall pregnant, just stop them and then try. But the problem is, is because it strips you of folate you're at a really high chance of having issues with that baby because you were depleted. And so your chances of having all the folate depleted congenital defects or defects are now much higher. So there's a lot we can do. There's a lot you can do to really reduce the defect rates and really improve and have the the, the quality and have the best baby that you can have. There's actually a lot and a lot of people don't realize it. 
Yeah, and we're definitely going to talk to that. You mentioned exercise before and obviously being a strength coach that works with pregnancy and postnatal, there is an aspect of conception in there. I love the people that come to me and be like, I'm planning on falling pregnant. I really want to get strong before. So that's amazing for me. I love hearing that. But in terms of exercise and conception, I feel... How do I put this without being un-PC? Some people that have anxiety, people that maybe use exercise as a stress relief or they're chronic over-exercises, maybe people that use exercise to really control their body and their shape and that type of thing. So really they're over-exercising. How does that impact their fertility? Let's say someone that's doing a lot of HIIT training, a lot of high intensity training, and maybe too much. So what happens if you think about what we are, we're animals, the body reads, we, and it's stuff that you have no control over. So what happens is the body is going to read all these messages that are in the bloodstream. So when you are doing high intensity The body doesn't know that you're actually exercising. The body doesn't go, oh, this is a feel-good thing. What the body says is, why are you so scared? Oh, my goodness, there's going to be danger. Right, let's sabotage fertility. The last thing we need is for you to fall pregnant. Because if you, you, I'm struggling right now trying to deal with all the stuff that's going to maybe happen. So inflammation goes up. Uh, muscle starts to often become sugar so that you can ready for fight and flight. You're, you're literally disintegrating yourself and then going, and now I want you to hold a pregnancy for nine months and I want it to be the highest quality. The other thing too is that reproduction is an extra to the body you don't need to reproduce to survive reproduction is something that will be taxing it's like a parasite to the body so the body will only actually do that if it's got good weight on it if it's got good strength it's at its best it's going to be um, a lot easier. Also, having high muscle mass and good sugar control means that your body feels a lot younger than the typical average person. So when you are in that state, the body's like, oh, yeah, sure, I'll ovulate. The other thing that exercise does is it raises progesterone. Progesterone actually helps the baby stick to the lining of the uterus. So therefore, it will depend on what what sort of form of exercise you're doing. So you don't want to be lounging around doing nothing either because that's going to allow sugar levels to increase which is then also going to freak the body out because the body says why is the sugar so high in my bloodstream are we about to need it for an attack so it will do the same thing and so what it does is stores fat all around your organs when the body does that the body is a lot older it will tend to again shut the fertility down So that's where exercise plays a large role, but it's the type of exercise that you're going to do. Spin classes, uh, serious running, all of that sort of stuff can actually work against you. And then it will also raise cortisol. As soon as you raise cortisol, your fertility drops. Wow, that's so interesting, isn't it? Yeah, I think that message that you just gave us is something that really needs to be highlighted a little more especially in these times and it's interesting because one of the little notes that I wrote before was homeostasis so obviously that's what your body needs to be in to be reproducing that's what we're aiming for 
Now, I do want to ask in terms of the work that you do, because I know that you do work with women that have suffered from multiple miscarriages. So we've talked about how exercise affects your fertility. When it comes to miscarriage, obviously there's not a correlation between exercise and miscarriage, unless you're doing something crazy, of course, but typically there's a fertility or there's a genetic reason for it. You're talking about getting better quality eggs and sperm and that type of thing. By doing this, can we then decrease the chances of miscarriage? Absolutely. We can decrease the. So a lot of my women come to me even with 12 or 20 miscarriages and go on to have two babies with no miscarriage in between. And it'll be more the fact that um, they're miscarrying because their body, they might have infections that haven't been picked up. They may have inflammation around the uterus, so endometriitis and things like that, uh, pelvic inflammatory disease, um, things that have to be addressed. And so that's not being addressed. The sperm quality could be poor and the DNA is fragmenting, but nobody's checking that. So they keep looking and it happens over and over in here. They keep looking at the sperm analysis and it looks amazing, but they're not digging deeper and going, oh, so why no one checked the DNA? So there's that. But if you're looking at the egg quality as well, Obviously, egg quality is going to get much better when our nutrient levels are much higher. When the body's sitting there saying things like, okay, so for instance, if you are exercising excessively, when you do that, you're going to create a lot of oxidation. Oxidation is then going to speed up the rotting of our systems. And therefore, the body is going to rob nutrients from areas that it doesn't need for survival away and go because eggs are very high in nutrition and so are those systems. They will rob it from there and put it in other areas trying to fight cancers, which are caused by oxidation. And so it's not like your body just splits the nutrients and it's always going to stay that. It's very, very clever. It will turn on itself so that it actually can fix itself. It's going to get nutrients wherever. Happens in men as well. Happens in a lot of women who decide to eat very low protein levels. If you're eating um, high junk foods or just lots of carbs, I'm not sure what they think happens to carbs, but when you chew carbs, it basically becomes sugar in your mouth very, very quickly before it's even hit the stomach. Of course, you have complex carbs that take a little bit longer, but proteins are needed to rebuild your DNA. So you need that amino acid sort of, you need that supply and you're not going to get it from a lot of the carbs. And so when you do things like that, even though, yes, people might be, that's where I don't like the calorie counting stuff so much because none of my patients will do that they will go more for quality foods your medicine we need to have that protein the good fats it's the type of food that you're eating um, that makes all the difference and so when you're doing that your body has all the tools that it's needing to actually put into the chromosome production and and replication so i think people will probably be going more down the trail a lot of the time for weight loss, thinking that's going to help them with pregnancy, when instead I've got a lot of women that would be considered overweight but high muscle mass and good fat on them that are quite fertile. 
right? So in it's and then the women that are very very slim, which maybe might look better to them in a mirror, often will becoming are becoming quite infertile, especially the older they become, where it's more challenging because there's more biochemical pathways that are needing more nutrients because you're aging, and so yeah, so basically that's that's that circle that keeps going round and round and round. Mm. And I'm just sitting here like nodding my head, (laughs) like absolutely all the things that you're talking about. Now, you did mention undiagnosed infections. And I know that you've mentioned to me previously examples of women with, say, stage four endometriosis going undiagnosed. I mean, I don't even know how that happens, for one. I feel like I've maybe got two questions in there. I mean, how does this go undiagnosed and what can you do to minimize the chances of this happening to you? I mean, stage four endometriosis, you would think that at some point in their fertility journey, in their attempts to conceive, somewhere someone would have picked that up. I think a lot of people have different pain tolerances. So there's that if people are just basing it on pain. So if you went to somebody and you said, I'm in excruciating pain, that would be more indicative of endometriosis. But there are women that don't have endometriosis with lots of pain. So there are lots of reasons for pain. And then other women will they just don't have any so they they don't have any symptoms at all. But often they're asymptomatic undiagnosed but they are actually symptomatic because their symptom is infertility and often what happens is if you go down the road of IVF first and you haven't unfortunately looked at or come across somebody that's good at finding that sort of thing because there's a lot of clues lots and lots of clues within our body that will indicate endometriosis if you don't do that then you go and do IVF IVF actually makes the endometriosis a lot worse so they may have had stage two and then instead of getting it removed at stage two where it was pretty simple they've gone and done years of IVF IVF doctors often will tell patients that it doesn't impact, endometriosis does not impact the conception. It only impacts the conception, not the attachment. And so they are doing six, 12 years. I've got them in my office all the time, where then while they're doing that, it's making it worse and worse. And then the endometriosis is now infiltrating the bowel. It's now growing everywhere. It's attaching the uterus to the stomach. They've got endometriosis in other parts on the liver and kidneys and goes on and on and on it's becoming actually um, quite um, dangerous to the person until they um, either come across a doctor because they've swapped a few times who says well let's go in and do a laparoscopy that hasn't been done and it's like oh there you go there's that's that'll help now so that'll be some or um, they're just told that the quality is really poor that they haven't got any symptoms of endometriosis and the surgery has its own risks and so they strongly don't recommend it And therefore, all they would say is now you have to go on to do donor eggs and all the rest. So it is, it's very common for me to find stage four, stage three, stage two endometriosis in someone because I'm actually making them so fertile and I know how to diagnose it through other means. And I I basically can um, lead them down the path of, look, let's go and investigate. And I would say 
95, maybe a bit more percent of the time they've got endometriosis, they remove it and off they go. The small percentage of people that don't have it will have a cousin to it or they'll have enough of other problems going on. It might not be endometriosis that were causing fertility issues and then they go on to fall pregnant after that. But it is a real problem and it would be great for them. I think if anyone's out there uh, thinking we've done all this IVF, nothing's working, either they start improving things they can do that they can definitely look at doing things like my program if that's what they want to do or they go and do at least a laparoscopy and and see you know do they find anything in that process it'd be definitely worth their while to do that I can't even wrap my head around the toll that it would take on everything to do with your life going through all this all of these things that you're discussing today, you know, 10, 12 rounds of IVF, 12, 16, 20 miscarriages. I mean, I don't know how you find the strength within you to just keep going. I mean, these women must be incredible and incredibly strong to be able to continue and keep pushing. I just think, take my hats off to them. I think that's so, there's such a level of courage in that. But I really want to talk about the fertility industry because it's a billion dollar industry. I looked this up recently and they're estimating that it's going to be worth like $46 billion by 2023. And I'd like to talk about this in a little bit more detail. I mean, do you feel people are being directed into fertility treatments as a quicker option rather than being it being used as a last resort? Oh, definitely. Absolutely. Even in the years that I have been working, where they would normally, for instance, do a laparoscopy first. So a doctor would send you off to a gynecologist in the past. A gynecologist would do run some tests. They possibly would look at doing a laparoscopy or at least a hysteroscopy. And then if that didn't work, then as a very last resort, they would send you to an IVF specialist. Now it's actually changed. What people are doing is they've been told, even by the surgeons, that unless they're in a lot of pain, and it's debilitating, they need to go off to do a few rounds of IVF first. And then if that doesn't work, to come back and then they'll do the surgery. So that's what's been going on for the last few years. And they they will do the surgery, but they almost refuse. They almost, it's like you have to insist, or you might have to say, IVF's not an option. It's against my religion, not doing it. So then they're like, oh, okay, then we'll do the surgery. And they'll go down that path. And then I suppose what's happening too is over the years, a lot of people have been falling pregnant through IVF. And so over time, it's seen as the gold standard. It's like, wow, they fell pregnant when his sperm was really bad and she had no other option. And look, now they've got two children. So that's possible and IVF, and that's how it sort of started. It's like it was a miraculous thing. What's because not it re- used to be the last resort and that then you'd have miracles. Sorry. That's right. So what's happening now is that people are being given some pretty serious drugs because the drugs have been used for a long period of time, like anything, like all drugs, as long as they've been around for ages, a lot of the time it's almost like their seriousness got washed out a little bit. 
it doesn't change the fact. If I can, so I suppose uh, first thing comes to my head, it's like an abused child. Once that child grows up, it's like they forget, but it doesn't change the fact that they had gone through that as a child and now they're dealing with the ramifications of that. It's sort of similar. It's like it's quite harsh on our body. Yes, can you survive it? Of course you can, but what has it done to you? I know a lot of my breast cancer patients have done IVF in the past, a lot of them. Whether I know when I was going through studying my master's, if you had had cancers, you were not really considered for IVF. So, you know, it, it, it does have some dangerous sort ofness to it. Mm-hmm. So what I tend to say to patients is, one, get ready for it. If you have to do IVF, let's make sure we do it once or twice really, really well. We've done all our homework. So we don't have to do rounds and rounds and rounds of IVF. Um, so definitely it's miraculous. It's allowed children where most, some people would never have had a child. So it's it's fantastic, and but it's a last resort scenario in my opinion still. Mm. So what would be some of the potential side effects of fertility treatments that maybe go undisclosed or over the years have kind of just been swept to the side? You've already mentioned a lot of your breast cancer patients have gone through multiple rounds of IVF. I mean, what other potential side effects of the fertility treatments aren't we being told about? Well, it depends how many rounds they've done and it depends the body that they're doing the rounds on. So if you're presenting yourself to hormone therapy and you're already quite sickly and then you've gone and put your body through that, or say, for instance, you've got a cancer that you didn't even know was there, you could start off that process of growing the cancers because estrogens tend to encourage that, especially if it's estrogen sensitive. So a lot of the breast cancers are estrogen sensitive and maybe progesterone sensitive as well. And so if you have something that's almost changing, it's not there yet, you could literally switch that switch on and it would be sitting there, you know, ruminating for a little bit of time. So that's those. Same with ovarian. Like they, even though they're doing it, what at the time they've done some checks, what happens is they're not doing PET scans before you go in and do an IVF process. And so therefore it's more the fact that have you actually switched on something that you may not see for the next five years? brewing because you've you were already almost there in the first place so that's one weight gain's a big one and so a lot of people have put on 15 20 kilos through the process and once you've got that weight gain especially at different times of your life so remember a lot of um, IVF patients are sitting around that 38 40 and then they go on full pregnant breastfeeding and they get stuck in that now I don't have time to exercise look after myself and that's it so then we've got the problems of what weight brings to the table that could be diabetes and they threw that into a speed quickening or depression and all that sort of stuff and then just an imbalance in hormones so a lot of people have done IVF that I've I have had as patients that the IVF drugs have had them like go into anxiety and panic attacks. It's causing that real raciness. Estrogen is anabolic. 
So if you're sitting there going sugars, sugars in the system, and then you're triggering a whole heap of other things that go hand in hand with that, as well as the trauma of maybe rounds of IVF not working, you then go, you, you, you may find that you end up with some PTSD around that sort of thing. So mental health can be really affected, depression and the rest. What I do find too is a lot of women that I work with, my aim is to get them absolutely perfect before they're even falling pregnant so that their chances of having a great pregnancy mentally, emotionally, physically is much better, but also post. So that's that strength, which is what you're doing as well, I'm sure, because it is really that whole, once you're much stronger, your chances of having sugar issues blow out, your chances of having weight gain blow out, all of that stuff is going to be minimized and therefore the whole experience is so much nicer. The recovery is so much better. Uh, pelvic floor, so much better, all of that sort of stuff. But it just takes a bit of work in the first place. And so I just think with going straight to IVF, you're robbing yourself of actually finding out what was actually wrong, correcting it if you can, or at least correcting eight out of the 10 things and maybe you're left with the two which means we need IVF to help and then you go on and the whole experience is so much better. From my perspective why wouldn't you want to be as optimally healthy as possible in all aspects? I mean everything that you're saying I'm like that sounds great <laughs> like, to be able to go to that level in so many of your systems and really trying to be as optimum in your health as possible I feel like every human should be working towards that not just people that are trying I mean that's my perspective but I feel like every human should be working towards that not just when you're trying to conceive oh absolutely and I have a lot of the husbands and partners say to me can I stay working with you and on this? Because I've never felt so good. They lose their waistline, their muscle mass comes up, they're back in the gym, they're fitter than they've been. And they were just aging and aging, which really the canary down the mine shaft is that your sperm quality drops. And so as to fix that, I have to improve their biochemistry so then their sperm gets a lot better and fine-tune there with whatever is going on with the genetic makeup and stuff as well, yeah. Mm. Speaking of ageing, <laughs> let's talk biological clocks because we've all heard the saying, the clock is ticking, especially when it comes to fertility and that our fertility is in a decline from the age of 30. How true is this really? Obviously, our fertility doesn't just take a dive off a cliff from the age of 30. It, it, and as females, we all go towards a point where we're no longer menstruating. So there is an end point to our fertility. But how true is this whole biological clock that we keep hearing about? I think... So I suppose in a world where you have your hands tied behind your back, it's very true. If you are doing nothing, 
and you're subjecting yourself to a whole bunch of chemicals and um, you're not doing the things to help your body to be its best, mm. you're going to deteriorate really quickly. Our world puts a lot of pressure on women and therefore they're juggling maybe high stressful jobs, they're eating morsels of food so they stay super trim because that's what the world's telling them that they need to do. If they're buying into all of that, yeah, sure, that's what you're going to see. You're going to see your fertility is going to drop away really quickly because your body's trying to save you. But in the world of super fitness, in a world where you are very aware of nutrient levels, you're also very healthy, you're doing more what you would have done in nature, that's really untrue. So that's where they did a study years ago to compare a group in America that is a religious group. And the study, I think, was done about 15 years ago, just by the top on the top of my head. And they looked at these people that just had babies till they couldn't have babies any longer. And by the time they got to 40, because a lot of them live in country areas, they have great community, they work the land, they have been married to one person their whole life from the time that they're very young. When that happens and they just have babies and keep having babies, so endometriosis is very unlikely because they've been pregnant for most of their adult life, on, off, on, off. And then they tend to not have infections because they haven't slept with multiple partners. But when they get to 40, uh, their fertility is only dropped by 17%. And when they get to 45, it's dropped by 33%. And they still menopause exactly like we do at the same ages. So what is going on in that group compared to what's going on with us, as well as the fact that a lot of the stats are actually based on IVF couples and IVF couples already have issues. That's why they've gone to IVF in the first place. So they're very skewed. My auntie was 47. My grandmother was 46 when they had their last baby. A lot of us who are quite fertile don't want to have babies when we're 45. We've finished our family. So how do we really compare? You would only have compare it to a group of people that are still having babies at 45 who have had babies earlier. That That's a really good study, that one, just to be able to see the difference. So I suppose if you, we do have a lot more control. We do need to understand we're having a lot of chemicals that are very toxic to us in our um, packet foods. We're having a lot of seeded oils, which aren't great for us either. They screw up our hormones. Um, we're exposing ourselves to drugs. We're exposing ourselves to medications um, that uh, maybe are trying to medicate us from something that actually is created by something else. And it just keeps going and going and going. When you do that, every time you put your body through that, you're introducing something that's quite foreign and the body can cope, we know through their studies that it's not going to maybe kill people straight away on the spot, but your body is going to alter itself somehow. Um, I mean, our body's altering just with stress, let alone serious medication. Gosh, there's so many ways that I can go from there, but I feel like there is part of the fertility industry that's almost like putting a Band-Aid on a broken bone, right? And as a society, we just aren't addressing the overall issue, which is our overall health and well-being. 
being in decline on top of, you know, toxic environments that we live in, as well as toxic lifestyle factors. I mean, how do we go about changing that? Mm. So first of all, I suppose you want to be aware of your lifestyle and what's toxic in it, which is what I often help patients. I'm sure you do too, because we were taught that certain things are not toxic. Why would people know any different? It's like us um, going to a mechanic. If we're not a mechanic, how do we know what's wrong with the car? It's exactly that same sort of idea. But if for us, I suppose it's a little bit easier because what I often say to patients is if you were put in a jungle and that, that's what we're built for. We're built for a jungle. We're built to go, we need to explore for our food. We need to grow our own food. We need to catch our own food. Um, we need to rise and sleep according to the sun and moon. Uh, those things are actually setting off hormones in our system. We also sit around and talk to each other and help each other. We would have been in communities. You wouldn't be on your own because it's too dangerous to do that. So there's communities, there's sharing, there's that passing down of information, take, people taking time, having friends, looking at people in the eyes. Now it's getting more and more, obviously, on screen. People feel like they've got a lot of friends. That's not happening. They can be quite lonely and not um, having hardly any friends but feel like they've got lo loads of friends. That's affecting us as well. So we've got the emotional, we've got the physical. So really, you're not spending time in the sun. You're not getting your vitamin D, which is amazing for fertility. You're not waking up at times where the sun's out, which is amazing for our body clock. So we have a pineal gland in our brain that basically not only tells us to, you know, look at 30, around 30, it's sort of like, you know, you really want a baby. Babies are very cute, aren't they? And that drives us down that path of wanting to have a baby. The pineal gland and also tells us what's day, what's night, when we should sleep. So when we're actually living where we look out at the stars and we have the nights encouraging melatonin, melatonin's being connected to high fertility, it's all of that sort of stuff. We're robbing ourselves of all of it. So we basically turn on the lights when we shouldn't. We go stay in bed or we go from bed into a car, into an office, like straight into no sun, locking ourselves away and sitting we know that epigenetics has looked at people who squat right down. It, it really helps longevity. So we're sitting on chairs. Everything we do is working against us. It's affecting our physicality. And so the body is aging very quickly. And so therefore we've got that as well. So we've got the physical, the mental, the emotional, the actual growing of stuff. We don't do that. We're not in touch with the land. We're not walking around with our feet on the ground. Like we just keep moving more and more away from the stuff that actually encourages fertility and then I suppose I mean obviously my aim is to try and teach people and have them reconnect and I see their fertility gets so much better but I have had patients who have you know gone into a situation where they've had to move in with their mother-in-law or some somebody else and all of a sudden all their hormones have crashed and I've seen somebody super fertile, just I've helped them have a child before and then they're doing a renovation and their whole system crashes hormonally, everything. So those sorts of scenarios, when I see that, you can really see that impact of your environment. 
So I think if you can put some time like into loving yourself, the body know like it's it's really strange, but the body can't tell the difference between you loving someone else or you loving yourself. So if you actually have positivity around you, if you actually really choose your friends wisely, you actually surround yourself with a lot of love and kindness, your body will feel it and then it feels happier, healthier. And then you also like exercise wise, the same sort of thing. It can't tell if you're in a gym or you're in a jungle. Isn't it really not going to be really much different? just go are you moving or are you not moving like what's actually happening how are you moving what do those movements mean even just eating quickly the body's going why are you eating so fast you scared about something like what's going on like chewing your food well breathing deeply that sort of stuff the breathing and the the connection between your breath and the pineal gland, like Mm -hmm. in how you breathe and all that type of thing. But again, I'm like furiously (laughs) nodding at you. (laughs) Um, But it's funny because you said that your body can't tell between the gym and the jungle. And in my head, I'm like, they're the same thing. (laughs) The gyms that I've worked in, they are one and the same. They're like giant jungles anyway. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Now, when it comes to fertility, even though the statistics are split around 35%, you know, male to female, typically when people think of fertility, it's normally in terms of women's fertility, you know, the women's biological clock. I'd like to talk about the male role in all of this because it does take two after all. Yeah, so the... Males, when you look at male sperm across an egg, you can fit about 20 across an egg. Mm. The sperm is very small. It's damaged extremely easily. That's why the testes are on the outside to keep them much, much cooler. And so, therefore, if a guy goes and actually starts heating himself up and doing things that, you know, even just sitting on an engine, say a truck driver, sitting on an engine is going to destroy his sperm. So there are things that we really need to think about. But sperm will be destroyed very, very easily. When that happens, I actually think it's the other way around. I actually think that male plays a much larger role in infertility as well as defect rates because the defects are so so easily made where eggs are way more robust than what sperm is and so therefore it's more the fact that the good thing about guys is a few good things we know that their cortisol levels tend to hang around for about There's plenty half, of good things about yeah them. yeah yeah <laughs> lucky for Let's them give right them a bit so more yeah credit. absolutely no, i love men <laughs> Uh, So I do. (laughs) What I mean is, so for them, like cortisol levels tend to hang around for three hours in a woman, but only a half an hour for men. So Mm. they get over things a lot. They're they're made to actually hunt and kill and have all that sort of stuff. They're, They're made for that stuff more easily than what we are. But It's more the fact that if they go and overheat themselves, they're going to damage sperm very easily. If they're quite intoxicated, so that men tend to not look after themselves as well. They don't go to doctors very easily. You know, they they don't tend to do the things that can make them super healthy. So therefore, they tend to deteriorate more quickly. If they're sitting down all day, they're going to affect their sperm a lot more, as well as the fact that 
for some reason, well, I suppose if you think of fertility, if you're going to try trying to fall pregnant naturally, you really need to look at seriously at the male side of things. If you're going to go through IVF, and you're going to just use donor sperm well they're already picking sperm that's a lot better anyway as far as quality there goes okay so therefore whatever goes wrong there they're going to lean towards the woman so that allowed them to focus on just the women in those cases but actually what happens here with my patients and I just had two just literally this Saturday where both of them had done lots of IVF and they were wondering why their embryos were all dying off when they were doing it and then they I asked them to go and do extra tests with their sperm and it came back that it was actually in the very poor range even though the basic sperm analysis looked excellent so when you do that it's like and that's why we would expect very poor DNA structure in those embryos so as soon as we get that better uh, which I can as soon as we get that better women tend to fall pregnant really quickly naturally Another study that actually came about was where I had some, if I see a woman come to see me and she's 42, 43, and she says, oh, look, we've been trying, done some IVF, we've been trying, or maybe not done IVF. Just before we go IVF, I want to try naturally. And so when she introduces her partner and the partner might be 32, 33, 34 years old, then I know there's going to be a very high chance I'm going to get that pregnancy. And so I had said to one of the IVF um, specialists that I work with, I said, I don't know what studies have been out there, but this is what I see. And she said, funny you say that. There was a study a couple of years ago that showed that. So if that was just woman related, then why when there's a much younger partner are their success rates much higher? So there has to be a male component there. Um, we know that the defect rates go up when a male is older than 37 with IVF. We do know that. So there's not much difference. They say 35 for women, 37 for men. We also know the defects are much higher with IVF because they're forcing pregnancies where, say, for ICSI, they force pregnancies where maybe those pregnancies wouldn't have actually gone forward. So there's those, in, those things as well. But as soon as you get the guy's sperm much better, I tend to see the pregnancies. It's like now we're going to see some pregnancies pretty quickly. And so, yeah, I mean, that's what I've seen for years and years and years is there's always this hidden sort of issue there with the men as well. But a lot of the men haven't been told anything. And the reason I think they haven't been is because what are they going to do about it? So when I was doing my master's, that's what it basically said. What, what's the point? They have to do IVF anyway. So why would we even tell them? So they don't even investigate it a lot of the time because they're doing IVF anyway. So the men have, have in some ways, like I had one guy the other day, he was saying, I was asking, is there anything I can do? Is there anything I can take? He's really wanting to have children. He's 44 years old now. He's saying, is there anything I can do? Well, his DNA fragmentation was in the poor range. Nobody had told him. Like They had tested it and then they didn't tell him anything about it. So then when I pointed it out, he was like, I asked over and over. And there are things, but it's not the way they work. 
It's not the way IVF works a lot of time. There are some IVF doctors that are trying. They are actually trying to do that, to bring in some nutrients that do know that. And they'll say, look, but a lot of time they're just saying, we're just going to need heaps of embryos because of this scenario. So that means lots of rounds of IVF. And we tend to see that when you have 10, 20 embryos, we'll get one or two babies out of that. Mm. So... Am I correct in saying if IVF fails, that doesn't mean that you still can't fall pregnant? Oh, absolutely. 70% of my women and men are IVF failures and go on to have babies. So that doesn't mean that at all. I sat around a table a few years back with a few doctors that I know and they invited some other doctors and the IVF specialists that were at the table that I was sitting with were shocked that I was getting pregnancies after they had done IVF, they didn't even know how that happened. They were totally unaware. How is that even possible that you're getting them to fall pregnant naturally? They couldn't understand that. And they were like, oh, we've we really got to talk to you. Like, we don't, don't how, how did that, what do you mean? They, it's, they were really shocked that I was able to do that. So I suppose they're not being, they're being told maybe themselves that this is the gold standard. And so therefore that's the end of the road. For me, it's actually can be when they've done IVF, it actually I can say to patients, okay, so we know you've done IVF. If it's not ICSI, even if it is ICSI where they've put the forced the sperm inside the egg, if they're getting some embryos and they've been able to freeze them, some of them are getting A grade and still no pregnancies, like still in that scenario, at least we know that the sperm and egg can actually like each other and like so there's that if they've come to me and said look I had a pregnancy but I miscarried well at least I know that I can improve the uterine function so that I can get bits of goodness from the stuff that they're telling me and then I go right now I know what I've got to fine-tune in those patients as well but no there are lots and lots of women one of my women that comes to mind had 20 miscarriages both naturally and with IVF she had tried everything she did testing. She thought that would make a difference. Got perfect embryos. Nothing worked. And she just had an infection. I sent her, as I just literally told her, She, I met her. She was two, four weeks and two days. So I hadn't even had a chance. She was 38 and a half years old. I hadn't even had a chance to fix anything at that point. I just said, I need you to immediately start this antibiotic. And she did. It was safe in pregnancy. She had to have it all through pregnancy. It was the first pregnancy she'd ever got a heartbeat. We just kept going, going, going. After she finished breastfeeding, we went in harder, killed the infection with a stronger drug because it just wouldn't go. So it was so stuck. And then went on to fall pregnant with a second baby and didn't need any antibiotics. She was fixed, done. No miscarriages in between. And that was a really simple fix. And it was actually an infection that people don't even think, don't know about, and they don't even think it causes a problem. So I have to face the constant, that doesn't do anything. There's those ones. They don't even look for them. A lot of them are anaerobic, so you don't even get checked for them. They have to actually ask the labs specifically to check for these. Like, you know, there's, there's it's a it's a bit... It's really outside of the norm. But when I was doing my master's, part of the long list of things that can cause miscarriages, recurrent miscarriages, those infections were part of that. So it's not that they don't know about it. It's just more that they seldom, very seldom check for it. Outside of the norm, huh? Mm -hmm. If there was one thing that you wish all women knew before they had a baby, 
what would that be? Besides from coming to see you, of course. (laughs) (laughs) I think my whole journey has been about giving hope to patients. I think what I'm constantly hearing and having to tell patients is I know they've been told certain things, but I'm about to take them down a different journey where there is a lot of hope. And you'll see as we investigate how those things are connected And because I'm attached to gynos and I work closely with doctors, they too will be happy that I found them. So I've sort of gone, they'll go, oh, oh, this, oh, okay, I didn't know that. Well, this is great. That's exciting. So they're seeing things. So there is a lot of hope. Just because they haven't found it doesn't mean that things aren't out there. It's just that they haven't gone down the path where they can get that knowledge. There's a lot of knowledge out there. There's a lot of things that increase your fertility but a lot of people don't know about it which Mm. um, is frustrating for me and so I feel like I just nurture and and educate one person at a time which I'm sure you do the same thing It, it is very and we see the benefits and we see the turnarounds and you see people falling pregnant I don't even get premature babies I I should be having 15 percent of your babies are premature I don't get premature babies I don't get babies that are defected there's a lot that you can actually do. And so uh, that that would be the thing is don't give up hope, but also don't leave it till the last minute. Don't leave coming to see me as your last resort. You should be doing this first. Find out as much as you can. Equip yourself with as much knowledge as you can. And once you start down this journey, it's not that people will say no, no, no. I'm I'm going down a medical journey. So it's very obvious, you know, when we get the results back, the results will tell you it decreases fertility. They will tell you that this, and we will see it change and then people will fall pregnant. That's why normally I do everything through word of mouth because I want them to know someone who has seen the results. They usually come to me saying you helped a friend and you helped her, another friend actually. They've seen the babies in impossible situations. So that's normally how I'm found. Mm. It's such a beautiful thing that you do for the world. I really think that there's something special about people that work in this area. I don't know, maybe I'm saying that because I do as well. But it's so rewarding, think, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I really do. I think I it's so rewarding. And I really do see how much passion and care and compassion and kindness. And it's consistent across all of the people that work in this space to help people through their maternal metamorphosis, regardless of what aspect they're helping in. So Thank you so much for your time today. It's been such an enlightening conversation and I've learned things which I love. So thank you so much. And I really hope that everybody listening knows that there's people like you that can start their conception journey in as opposed to going to you as a last resort, that we can almost flip the narrative and people need to do all of this type of thing first and then go to IVF last. I just thought of something that really is probably one of the biggest misconceptions out there is often women will tell me that they've got a 28-day cycle and they're absolutely, they don't know why, they're not falling pregnant. And a lot of people don't realise that just because you've got a 28-day cycle doesn't mean you're ovulating. 
So mm. you could be totally infertile and have a 28-day cycle and they think because they've got their period that they actually are fertile. And I think that's where you go move faster, investigate earlier, look deeper while you're younger. So it's great to be able to have an you know, obviously impact the generations to come. That's where, you know, we help create healthy mothers that have healthy homes and healthy fathers and they are happier when they're not snappy, they're not cranky, they enjoy life a lot more. And I think there's that part of it as well, which is really special to be able to do that. Mm. Well, it's very true. They're not coming to pregnancy depleted. They're coming to pregnancy in optimal health which means that they have better pregnancies, better births, better postnatal periods, all that type of thing. So it really is a flow on effect. So I completely agree. Thank you so much for your time today. It's been really, really enlightening. My pleasure, Tammy. And if you're hearing this message, I want to say a huge thank you because it means that you've listened to this entire episode. Of course, if you have any questions about the things that we covered in this episode or want to know more about me or my other projects, you can find me on YouTube and Instagram at The Pregnancy Process. For those currently in their conception or pregnancy journey, you can actually apply to join my complimentary but private community, The Preggy Training Crew. And you'll find my community application and social media links in the episode description. And of course, if you enjoyed this episode, I absolutely encourage you to share it with other women just like you. And I look forward to seeing you in the next episode.